0: Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US.
1: Hello, and welcome back to the Microbimphy podcast. Andrew and Nabil are your hosts today, and this is part two of our extended holiday special on bacterial taxonomy. Professor Ian Sutcliffe, Professor Phil Hugenholz, and Professor Mark Pallon join us, and we will jump right back into it, talking about integrating modern genomics into taxonomy and nomenclature. So, Phil, GTTB is definitely the gold standard now. Despite what anyone else says to me, it is definitely the gold standard for modernizing and integrating genomics into this classification and taxonomic, taxonomic problems that we were talking about in the previous episode. So Phil, what is GTTB though? And what does it try to accomplish?
2: Well, basically it's a, a taxonomy that's based on, on genomic comparisons. And so we are far from the first to make phylogenetic trees from concatenations of single copy conserved genes. So that's been around for a while. And the, I guess the the main thing that we've done differently is first of all that we have been as comprehensive as possible. So we have taken as many genomes as we can get, and we've got them from a single source, um, which is NCBI from the Genome Assembly Archive there. And we have taken a set of concatenated single copy genes, 120 in this case, and that's that's a moving target because depending on who you talk to, there'll be people saying you know we should or shouldn't include a particular particular single copy. But what I what I would stress is actually that the trees that come from these type of comparisons are pretty comparable for the large part. And actually, I'm very happy to see a kind of convergence on the structure of, say, the bacterial domain that's coming out recently. But because we... We make the tree from as many genomes as we can get our hands on. We're sort of forced to use a suboptimal way of or heuristic way of inferring the tree using fast tree, which is the only maximum likelihood inference inference method that will scale. And we've had some criticism of that, that, you know, it's not perfect and it definitely is not, but it's adequate for the task. And then what we've really spent more than half our time on is overlaying a hierarchical taxonomy on top of that so within any given tree if particularly if you've got a tree that's got you know 30, tips you actually have many many stable interior nodes and we're using the canonical taxonomy um phylum class order family genus species and you often have many more nodes that you can put a label on but we're using that those seven ranks so we're basically taking a tree and then overlaying uh, a taxonomy taxonomy onto it and what we've tried to do is do that in a systematic way by using, uh, taking relative evolutionary divergence into account. And I'm, I'm very happy with this. I actually, when I wrote the original grant, I hadn't actually incorporated that into it. it. sort of came up later. And I think that was a real winner for this taxonomy because I'm actually not interested in taxonomy, per se. say I'm interested in evolution. And so having a standardized taxonomy that takes evolution into account, I think is a great way. To, to move forward. And so the idea here is that if you say you have a node in a tree and that represents an ancestor, that's a family ancestor, it's comparable to other family ancestors within the same tree. And what you're really saying is that that those organisms at those interior nodes coexisted on the planet together, more or less. That's, that's the, that's the, you know, the explicit idea there. So we've spent an awful lot of time. It sounds pretty simple, right? But actually it's a lot of work and so to give you an idea we're working on the latest um, release which is 207 at the moment and there are 17,000 extra species to include in the tree and we've been curating it for the last two months so it does have a lot of human curation there's a lot of also automation that gets us to a point that that makes that curation we've had criticisms that it's just thrown together and it's not looked at and it's just automated but that's not really the case there's there's a lot of um, manual curation of the taxonomy
3: when you do the relative evolutionary divergence how do you actually pin the nodes to a particular time how do you decide that this this branch is 100 million years old or a billion years well, we old
2: don't, we don't actually connect it to time it's a, it's relative so we set the root of the tree at zero and then all of the tips at one and then we do a linear interpolation from the root to all tips and so it's a relative time so generally, genera fall within, from about 0.85 to 0.95 on that zero to one. And, and uh, so it, it's important also to point out that you don't compare those relative values between trees since people have wanted to do that, but that's not, what you, do. you can compare within a tree, but not between trees. So you can, you can then make a time tree out of it, but then you need to have some points that you can, you can pin down to particular times, which as you know, is very, very difficult for bacteria because we don't have a fossil record to work with, but in theory, you could do that. And there's been, it it is a simple approach that we developed, but then of course, as you often find others have done it and there are other ways of doing this, this this relative evolutionary divergence. And there was a nice paper from Antonis Rokas' group where they did it on fungi and they did it with a more uh, sophisticated model and compared against our simple model. And I was very happy to see that it was actually pretty consistent. One thing I'll add is that we create corridors because we're fitting seven ranks to a tree. We have a corridor and that's actually a saving grace because we didn't want to go in and completely upend the existing taxonomy. We wanted to we wanted to have some movement so that we can, you'll have deeper and shallower genera, deeper and shallower families within a corridor. So we can actually accommodate taxonomic opinion. I know that one of your guests spend a lot of time on mycobacterium, and we can accommodate splitting or lumping that because it's within the corridor, right? So we actually, we're following taxonomic opinion, but if somebody then comes out and says, you know what, mycobacterium is a phylum, well, we can't follow that because it's completely out from, from our scheme. But within a corridor, there is some flexibility and we do try to follow taxonomic opinion of others. We do try to follow nomenclature as much as we can. And I certainly don't want to be the the arbiter of nomenclature because that's a very sticky wicket there, which Ian can speak to better. But we try to take the the, the nomenclature as best we can. But, yeah, it's a very passionate area, I guess, as we'll get onto later. But for my mind, we create a a taxonomic framework and then you can fill that taxonomic framework with names as Mark has been very, I guess the word is aggressively or let's say very enthusiastically. Yeah, yeah. and, and I have, and I admire that he made a very good case for it. As a microbial ecologist, I have some reservations too, but I'm very interested to see how, where that will go. Before we move on to the
3: nomenclature, uh, I, I think there's some interesting questions about taxonomy. So there are some surprises when you look at molecules and sequences. And I mentioned the mycoplasma. So in the old days, mycoplasma was thrown out into its own phylum and they were seen as, oh, there must be primitive organisms. They're so different from everything else. They're, you know, And then uh, Carl Woese. I mean, I remember reading his review, Bacterial Evolution. It was just an amazing moment to see that. And in there, he, he spends a lot of time saying, well, mycoplasmas evolve quickly, they're, they're not a phylum. They're, I'm not even sure, where are we now? Are they, are they a family or a class? I can't remember. But they're in, they're, order. It,
2: order. They're yeah. in order.
3: Okay, yeah. so they're, they're down shoved down into the firmicutes. And so how many other surprises are there like that, do you think, in your classification, that, that people who haven't thought about taxonomy much will say, hang on, I never realised
2: that? Well, the micro my- my- Plasma is a good example of why you don't want to use a a straight threshold. So taxonomists have been quite keen on using flat sequence-based identity thresholds. And I think that's when you get into trouble because a very fast clock group like the mycoplasmas look much more deeply related than they actually are once you take that evolutionary divisions into account. That's one of the most striking ones. I guess the other one is the CPR or the you know, the candidate phyla radiation. Another very fast clock group, and the consent, the building consensus now is that it's a it's a derived feature, and long branches are due to rapid evolution, and it's a single phylum rather than you know up to a hundred phyla based on the on the red values and a sister lineage of the Chloroflexota, if I'm using the the new tech the, the new nomenclature. So yeah, I guess that was another one. I mean, I was very concerned about the CPR because Jill Banfield's group was driving, had been driving the CPR and Jill is a very smart cookie. And I was a bit concerned about that we had such a discordance between our estimates on it, you know, one phylum versus a hundred. So I was very keen to try to resolve that and then got involved with people like Tom Williams to try to root the tree and in order to find, because you need to know where the root is because the CPR is often portrayed in the, in the iconic picture from the hug paper as as a basal lineage and the most recent analyses and there have been a few there's one from from our combined effort and one from frank elwood that would that indicates that the cpr is actually a sister lineage of chloroflex sota and and derived so I, again that's that harks back to that my main interest is actually in the evolution and understanding how how the organisms came
1: to be yeah i want to cross over to, to ian on on his thoughts on. All that Phil has, has presented here.
4: Well, I, I I was going to jump in and say something about mycoplasma because mycoplasma has been fairly controversial at the other end of the sort of taxonomic hierarchy at the sort of species and genus level as well, because and and it's quite a useful illustration of the way rules work in in the code because. There's been a lot of controversy which, about the fact that Gupta proposed the reclassification, the large-scale reclassifications within the, the, the mycoplasma group, because it's been long recognized that the, the rules of nomenclature say that the genus that contains the type species mycoplasma mycoides, which was described in the early 20th century, must be called mycoplasma. But the, of the many other species of mycoplasma that are known, they, they don't fit when we when we can now do things like phylogenomic analysis, they don't fit in that in, in, in the same part of the tree as, as that particular species. So Gupta came up with a scheme that proposed the renaming of those in species into genera like mesomycoplasma and metamycosplasma and so forth. I think I've got those names right. And that's been met with almost universal hostility because people don't like the renaming of organisms, basically. But my take on that is that actually that's what the science says. And and so that raises this question of what do you do when things are renamed and and how long does it take people to get used to them? And, you know, Rade has followed the rules of the code. His paper is is very proficient in that respect. All of his proposals were done correctly so all of the names he proposed are valid names and and you know they've left the genus that contains the type species mycoplasma mycoides called mycoplasma and they've come up with names that other sort of recognizably connect to the historic connection of those other genera to to their roots original roots in mycoplasma I think that's a really good pragmatic approach it's interesting to say that to observe it's been met with considerable hostility and he's also had the same experience with mycobacterium as phil mentioned earlier
2: can i just chip in and it's it's ironic because the mycoplasma is actually in a separate family from all of those new you know mycoplasma and mesomycoplasma so i think that's been a an issue in nomenclature for a while that the that the type is so far removed from the majority of the other ones that we've described but yeah we follow we follow that 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 approach in gtb2 it's, it's many I mean, I,
4: general I do think this is what we're seeing in the current sort of Twitter storm around phyla. Around it's that thing of people say, well, we've always called it this one thing. Why can't we keep calling it that? And, and actually, we, we also have to, as taxonomics, have to be flexible to adapt to changes in knowledge. And the ne- changes in knowledge, particularly methodological changes, tend to change names. I think that we, uh, to go back to the historic dimension on this, we have a taxonomic framework and and a nomenclature framework that was established in the mid-20th century and and proved itself reasonably proficient or or fit for purpose, particularly after the the order was brought to some of the chaos by the announcement of the approved lists in 1980 or publication of the approved lists of of names in 1980. And, And in that era, we were highly reliant on, because of the lack of molecular methods, on combinations of phenotypic methods and things like wet lab DNA-DNA hybridization. But then in the 1990s, and certainly with the advent of PCR, we saw the revolution that was um, caused by 16 sRNA analyses, and that resulted in a raft of reclassifications, but people got used to it. And, you know, people quite, my view is that people quite quickly get used to new classifications and news, applying new names. Now, in the, in the last decade, we've seen a raft of reclassifications on the back of phylogenomic analysis, but that's because we've got this new tool, which is phylogenomic analysis. I don't think there'll be, there has been a raft of reclassifications, and some of them are, like in the example I mentioned by Rady Gupta, fairly large scale papers, but, but I think actually the system will settle down because as everyone starts to apply genomic taxonomy, we should arrive at a relatively stable classification and we should arrive at it relatively quickly. I mean, I know Phil is passionate about the GTDB. I would say that other classifications are available. I made the point on Twitter, bacterial taxonomy is
3: a solved problem now. Phil has shown us the way, okay, you can argue about the details, a few little things here and there, but the broad framework is now accepted. And we and these arguments are going to stop soon. Yeah. And we should celebrate that we should we should stop quibbling about all these little issues, stand back and see the big picture and say, look, wow, we've got a method, it works, we can see the big picture. We have a method that doesn't just work for the 2% that we can culture, but works for the 98% we can't. It t- speaks to, I mean, you use the term Uh, sublime to describe the the kind of grandeur of microbial life. We have a method that works not just for that 2%, not just for the 2% of 2% that are clinically important, but works for all bacteria, wherever, going forward for centuries and millennia to come. So I think that these little petty arguments, we should put them in their place and say, all right, you can argue about angels on pinheads, but the grand vista is ahead of us now, and this is something to celebrate. This is amazing, it's an amazing time to be alive and we should be positive about that
2: rather than be pernickety about all this kind of stuff. That's my feeling anyway. I thank Mark for those comments, but I would say let's consider it more a prototype to show that it's possible. And science moves forward, methods improve, I'm not saying it's uh, I, I'm not saying it's going to last for centuries. Well, Definitely.
3: Can, I, can, I, can I just, uh, if I, we're going to go back into the detail, can I just ask you, how does the NCBI taxonomy work and how does that differ from what you're doing? Why do you have to do what you're doing when they have their own tax? So the the, the, the NCBI has its definition of phylum and class and order, and it has presumably some way of deciding how to throw things into those ranks. But it's, it's, it's a bit opaque to me. I don't know, Phil, if, you, if if there is order in their approach or whether it's all ad hoc, I don't know. What, what, what's your feeling? Do, do they use a DNA-based approach to, to make um, those
2: decisions? Yeah, I, I think they do to some degree. They certainly use um, average nucleotide identities to define species as we do for GTDV. And they, I mean, they do a lot of work and we rely very heavily on them for, you know, they, we use a lot of their work. So I, I'm not about to diss them. <laughs> we definitely, they don't use, they don't use a rank, they don't use a rank normalized approach. And they use a, a, many sources, different sources of information, published information, some of their own work. So yeah, I think it's a combination effort to come up with, the, with taxonomy. I mean, one of the reasons I got into this Initially was to try to get a bit more clarification around all the uncultured stuff. Initially, through 16S, when I used to curate green genes, that you know, there were just miles of on the on the NCBO taxonomy page, there are just miles of these environmental clones that were just unclassified. And that used to bug me. And so I was, I got into it from that point. And GTB is sort of the next iteration of that. We're using genomes. And I think that's one of our major contributions is providing a, a full classification for all of these uncultured taxa, which is definitely, I would say, missing to a large degree from, through the NCBI taxonomy.
1: Yeah, let's, let's follow on from that with uncultured. Andrew, you had a, a question or a point.
2: Yeah, I've made a mistake of doing long read sequencing on metagenomic samples. And then I made the second mistake where I fed all these reads or assemblies into a 16S database that shall remain nameless. And also then into GTDB. And I was quite uh, surprised by some of the major differences in the high level calls that these are making. Some of them are just crazily different. And I guess what I'm wondering is, is 16S just a load of rubbish? Is this like, uh, you know, we look back in a few years and say this was like uh, a very big misadventure. We spent huge amounts of money on it. And it's, you know, most of it has worked out to be, uh, you know, complete crap. So I I would not say that. I mean, having made my start in 16S, I would would not agree with that. I would say what's happened in terms of if you're making large 16S trees and you're using environmental sequences, and I've published this a few, well, many years ago, that through the PCR process, you can create chimeric sequences. And this tends to corrupt your trees to some degree. And we were estimating at least 4% of the 16S sequences are chimeric to some degree. And even worse, some of the chimeras are actually highly reproducible because what's happening is the polymerase is falling off a particular bend in the secondary structure. It will form secondary structure and then it will recombine locally with another sequence. So there's a well-known instance in the human gut where you get a chimera between two quite distantly related bacteria almost around the same region. So I think that's adding noise to it. And also I think if you're trying to make a tree of 30,000 tips out of 16S, it does seem, you do seem to get an effect from the chimeras, but also just you get a reduction in the bootstrap support for those very, very large trees. That's been my observation anyway.
4: Yeah, I
1: want to bring Ian into the conversation on this.
4: I was going to add, I I was going to agree with Phil, I think 16S has been highly successful. I I think, you know, some of the details we got from the 16S trees are a little blurred, but but 16S was a real milestone in terms of our ability to delineate species well and there have been cl- reclassifications as i said earlier and and now we ha- we have i think what's really important is this recognition that we have good metrics like ANI or digital DDH that can allow us to define species pretty pretty convincingly and and i think the, the interesting work to be done is and this is where some of the big reclassifications are coming in is 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 at the level of the higher taxa you know how do those species group into genera how do genera group into families and so forth and and that's where you know that i i absolutely agree that you know the gtdb is well recognized as the gold standard and i think some of the reclassifications that we're seeing come from mistakes that were introduced through 16s being applied at those higher taxa levels it's utility as a metric certainly from the mid-90s through to i guess The sort of first decade of this century as a way of delineating species has been extremely valuable.
1: I just wanted to ask, uh, Ian, really quickly, for those people who would be interested, what are some of the alternative methods to GTDB? You kind of touched on it, but didn't mention anything specific.
4: People have different tools that they use for processing genomic data. I work very closely with my colleague, Vartel Sangle, who is very enamored of a, a talk which I can't pronounce. I can never pronounce this. Phil might be able to tell, say it properly. Is it Phylloflan? And you, you will get slightly different clustering from these different phylogenetic approaches. And, and that's really what I meant. I mean, obviously, I, I'm not actually aware of other really large scale user friendly websites like GTDB, where you can look at the whole hierarchy of the bacterial and archaeal worlds, like you can within GTDB, I was thinking more of the application of different phylogenetic methods to sort of studies, you know, say the genus level or the family level. I can make a plug for other tools.
2: (laughs) There's TYGS, which is part of the DSNZ and LPSN guys. I think it stands for type strain genome server. So they have a larger scale taxonomy. There are other tools, but yeah. So that's what i mean by <laughs> just being a little bit cautious in saying this is the the only solution because it's not but i think more generally we should look at it as this is part of our adolescence as we move from the old phenotype based uh, classification which is not going to scale to a fully genotype based classification which will scale but i think that's the most important thing and, and and you know mark made that point very well earlier on
4: uh, i think an- another thing that came out that, just to pick up on a comment i made earlier I've written, and indeed others have written, to criticise this sort of salami slicing, what I co- what I described earlier as the one colony, one species, one paper approach. And I'm conscious of the fact that that's quite a negative criticism in the sense it's telling people what not to do. The question that goes, I think, should be asked alongside that is what should people be doing? I personally think that we now have the opportunity to, to look at things at slightly larger scale, whether it's larger scale papers that look at say genera and families, whether it's papers that look at sort of bundles of species together. So we've done that mm-hmm. with
3: Oren and others when we did the chicken gut microbiome, we named over 600 species in a single paper. And uh, it's possible. And it is the way ahead. It doesn't scale, like you say, to have a single paper for each species we've got to move ahead and and scale with the times but what we did was we initially had a spreadsheet where we named all the species and we put in traditional protologues explaining the latin names and so forth but because we heard down the grapevine that there are some nomenclature experts who don't accept excel spreadsheets and accessory information supplementary information they want it to be in the body of the manuscript we injected into the body of the manuscript over 100 additional pages that contain just those protologues. We paid over $1,000 more to get the, the manuscript published. But I think we broke the mold there because we showed that you can name hundreds of species in a single paper. And yeah, you can do it. Just get on with it. What's the problem?
4: Yeah, and I think what we're picking up on here is that it and it is a, a shift. It's a shift in behavior. So it will take a little while to bed in. But- <clears throat> that thing that, that there was a mentality there's a 2010 paper on called something like notes on classification of uh, prokaryotic species that oh. will become a bit of a millstone around the taxonomist neck and and that may really clearly states i think possibly even in the abstract in order to classify something you should characterize it as as thoroughly as possible using this this panel polyphasic approaches and actually this, is, this goes back to the comment I made earlier about the emphasis on diagnosis rather than description. Once you have a genome sequence, you don't need to do all of that extra work to, to come up with a robust classification. And, and, and that allows you to, to pick up on something the way Phil described it. Not every leaf on the tree is particularly interesting. And, and you can use your classification to, my, my belief is that you can use a classification to come up with a framework and then you can look at that bigger picture and go back in and, and then interrogate the bits that look interesting in more detail and, and, and do the characterization downstream. You know, so, so say a particular taxon looks particularly interesting as a source of metabolites, then, then one might go back in and start interrogating genomes from members of that taxon for their biosynthetic gene clusters and or those kinds of experimental approaches. And and that's a thing possibly redefines or or, or is a reappraisal of the working methods of the jobbing taxonomist. And that will take time to settle in. There's a distinction between a
3: a taxonomist and a a microbial ecologist or a microphysiologist. For the taxonomy, we can be a fundamentalist. All we require is a description and a circumscription. And that's all that the, the code tells us to do. It doesn't tell us what methods are used for that and any any reviewer that says that you have to do a certain thing we just need to be fearless and stand up to them and say no this is enough and 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 let's draw a line this phylogenetic placement is robust this circumscription is clear please get out of my way I've got other things to do than argue with you
1: all right. And I think that's an excellent point to end it. Don't fear. We will be back with more with our esteemed guests. This is Andrew and Nabil talking with Professors Ian, Phil, and Mark about bacterial taxonomy on our holiday special of the Microfin podcast. And we will see you in part three.
0: Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, Please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at MicroBinfi. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.